Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the latest shenanigans of whether the government has a Brexit plan and whether fake news online is disrupting our democracy. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, political columnist Janan Ganesh, Robert Trimsley, who is managing editor of FT.com, media correspondent David Blood, and Rene Kaplan, who's the FT's head of audience engagement. Thank you all for joining. So it's been another busy week in the world of Brexit. It began with a leaked report from Deloitte suggesting the government is in disarray over its plans to leave the EU, cabinet ministers are split, and another 30,000 staff apparently will be needed to make Brexit work. The government said it didn't recognise anything to do with this report. Then we had the FT reporting the EU looking to land Britain with a 60 billion euro bill for leaving the EU. And the House of Lords is still looking problematic for passing that crucial Article 50 legislation if the government loses that Supreme Court case. So there's a lot going on. And once again, Westminster is scratching its head and asking, does Theresa May have a plan? So George Parker, all this stuff was met by yet more silence from Downing Street. Brexit means Brexit, apparently, and we're going to make it work. At PMQ's Jeremy Corbyn did a half-decent job, I think, of quizzing the Prime Minister and she held the line that they're just getting on with it. Do you think there is actually a strategy at work here? If there is, it's very hard to discern what it is. And just listening to Theresa May week in, week out, saying the same sound bites, it's not just concerning people in business and the fear is that they don't have a plan, but it's also spreading concern through the civil service as well. And so Simon Fraser, the former head of the Foreign Office, was saying this week at a select committee that there was no clear political direction. And it's the absence of political direction, I think, which is causing concerns, spreading gloom throughout the civil servants working on Brexit. I've spoken to a number of officials very close to this process in the last few weeks who are sunk in despair. They think that we're heading for a hard Brexit, maybe even heading for a very hard Brexit where there's no deal. Some people are saying that they might go off and find other jobs. At the moment, there is a sense of drift. And I think Theresa May needs to do something quite urgently to address that. So I suppose the question is they might have a plan and they're just getting on with it quietly and not briefing the press. The idea is that when Article 50 is triggered, it's going to come out and it's all going to be on the table and we'll all be magically surprised. And people around David Davis, that's what they're talking about, saying that David Davis is actually a very effective mm-hmm. Brexit secretary and he's just getting on with it and dealing with the levers of government as opposed to nattering off to friends in the press. You know, Is there any truth in that, do you think, George? Well, I think that is true. If you're looking for signs of encouragement, I think the fact that David Davis does seem to be getting his head down. That's one of the things that is a recurring theme talking to Tory MPs and people in the civil service that Dave Davis has got a good team around him. He's working hard and he's working closely with Philip Hammond, who I think is the crucial player in this whole drama in Whitehall, the person who's injecting economic reality into these discussions. And the fact that David Davis and Philip Hammond are meeting regularly now, particularly to discuss the impact of Brexit on financial services, I think that's a positive sign. So there are some positive signs, Janine Ganesh, but do you think Brexit is still going to happen? Yes, I'm certain that something called Brexit will happen. Theresa May can't afford to resile from that because she'll get crucified by her own party, never mind the 52% who voted for it. 
But equally, I don't think the detail of that exists, whether it's been publicly released or not. In other words, I don't think there's a cunning plan there. And for strategic reasons, the government is withholding it to prevent the likes of you and I writing about it. If there were that kind of plan, I think at least the civil servants would know about it. And they don't seem to. And they're happy to complain about that. I thought the most interesting revelation or tidbit that came out this week was from Chris Lockwood, who used to work at Number 10, now has gone back to writing for The Economist. And he tweeted something along the lines of, the problem is that Theresa May centralises decisions in Number 10 and then doesn't make the decision. And that reminds me so much of the Prime Minister between uh, 2007 and 2010. Gordon Brown, the complaint was always that everything ultimately had to go back to number 10. And remember, these were slightly more frivolous issues compared to something as serious as Brexit. But then having centralised the decision, he wouldn't make one. And he'd ask for more information and more briefing papers. And I wonder whether they share, Theresa May and Gordon Brown share that characteristic. And she's going to have to unlearn that and develop an extra edge of decisiveness if this process is going to work. Theresa May obviously has form here, Janan. This is how she operated in the Home Office, which was a huge brief, but still much smaller than the whole of government and the whole of Brexit. And she managed to effectively protect her position as Home Secretary by operating in that way, because Home Secretaries infamously get taken down by events, lost CDs of immigration, prison escapes, borders, you name it. Home Secretaries under the Labour government didn't last very long. Yet Theresa May stuck in there for six years. That was because of this way she operated a very closed clique of advisors and decision taking. She obviously wants to do that in Downing Street so you can see why she's trying to do that. Yeah but the reason she survived as Home Secretary was partly that but also it was a much smaller department than it was when people were lasting 18 months and then hitting a wall. Because of the Ministry of Justice being created it became a narrower department. But even if you can get away with it as as Home Secretary, I don't think you can get away with it as Prime Minister. And you definitely can't get away with it as a Prime Minister overseeing the most complicated technical thing the British state has done since the Second World War, which is Brexit. And I think what will eventually happen, and I think George was right to mention Philip Hammond, what will eventually happen is that the Treasury will disproportionately play a big role in the negotiations because the single most important thing will be protecting our economic interests, not just the financial services, but our market access in general. And only one department really has the expertise to do that. Only one department has been the imperial department for decades. And I imagine the Treasury will end up being as much a player as David Davis or anyone else in the negotiations. So, George, having seen Theresa May's Downing Street, David Cameron's Downing Street and Gordon Brown's Downing Street. How much of this do you think is about that mentality versus just the sheer complications and unexpectedness of the Brexit vote? Well, I think it's a combination of all of that. What we're seeing with Theresa May's style of government is that there is open discussion at a cabinet level and they have full cabinet committee meetings where differences are aired. David Davis will pull together lots of papers. And there seems to be, at that level, open government. But as Janana was just alluding to, what happens then is it all goes into a funnel up into Theresa May's office. And she said it herself, I make the decisions. And when she says that, she means she takes the decisions in the company of two or three very close advisers. David Cameron used to pre-cook most of his decisions with George Osborne on the sofa in his study and then present it to Cabinet more or less as a fait accompli. Now, which of those two is a better way of making decisions? I'm not sure. But what we do know is that until all those papers funnel into Theresa May's office, nobody knows 
the senior officials don't know, ministers don't know quite how Brexit's going to look. What did you make of this Deloitte report that came out? There's been a lot of confusion on whether this was an official government report or whether it was commissioned by the government or commissioned by someone in the Cabinet Office or just Deloitte making a report on how Brexit is going because although I think it was over-egged in some areas, there were some hints of things that I've picked up on about the Brexit process in there. Oh yeah, I think the reason it had purchase was the fact that it spoke to a wider truth. Now, there was a big dispute between Number 10 and The Times about whether this was or wasn't a paper prepared for the Cabinet Office. It probably wasn't. But nevertheless, the reason people were interested in it was it shone a light on what was going on. So, for example, the idea that you may need 10 to 30,000 extra civil servants, that's entirely plausible. Because what we're going to do at the end of the day when Brexit is complete is we're going to swap Brussels bureaucracy for a new level of British bureaucracy. We might prefer British bureaucracy, but it's still going to be British red tape and British officials. Same with the observation that cabinet divisions are hindering progress. We know that Philip Hammond and Greg Clark, the business secretary, are at odds with people like Liam Fox and Boris Johnson, the Brexit ministers. So it spoke to a wider truth, I think. I would be surprised if the government were prepared. Remember, this is a project that doesn't have a precedent. And if anything, leaving the European Union is much more technically complex, having been a member for 40 years, than joining in the first place. So it's an unprecedented project. And it therefore doesn't surprise me at all that the British state lacks the capacity to execute it. I'm not actually sure what preparedness would look like, which was my problem with the argument made by Deloitte. The ultimate irony would be if the central British states, if Whitehall ends up bigger post-Brexit than it was when we went into it. Because ultimately, the main thrust of Euroscepticism in this country, although a broad range of people voted for it in June, the main thrust has been a sort of economically liberal, small state view. And the idea being that Brussels was a dead hand of government on an otherwise liberal, freewheeling Anglo-Saxon economy. If you end up with a much more dirigiste, much more extravagantly staffed Whitehall in, I don't know, 2020, I would see it as irony. A lot of people on the Brexit side might see it as something worse than irony. The added irony is the 30,000 figure identified by Deloitte is almost exactly the number of functionaires, bureaucrats working at the (laughs) European Commission headquarters in Brussels. Very briefly on the last Brexit point, George, the House of Lords. So this is the situation that the government is taking this Article 50 decision, which we've discussed in previous podcasts, to the Supreme Court, which is coming up in early December, I believe. And if it loses that, it's going to have to have a Brexit bill ready. And I'm sure you've heard as well that all the preparations are being made for a nice, clean, simple bill that will go through as hopefully as little impedance as possible. That's what the government wants. But then it hits the House of Lords and there's a lot of very vocal peers, Baroness Wheatcroft, for example, who want to stop it. Do you think the House of Lords would dare face down the House of Commons and the will of the 52%? In a word, no, I don't. And I think you're right that the government is trying to prepare a bill. I think the government expects to lose in the Supreme Court and then Mm. they hope to have a very narrow bill. My sense is that in the House of Commons, MPs from the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats and pro-European Tories are starting to lose their nerve a bit on this. And they're worried that they're going to be pushed into a corner if they start trying to play around with this Article 50 bill and pushed into a binary choice between do you want it or not? And they don't want to be seen to be on the wrong side of public opinion on that. When it gets to the Lords, of course, it's a different question. You're right. There's a huge majority of peers who obviously didn't want Britain to leave the European Union in the first place and would now dearly love to frustrate it. But at the same time, you speak to them and you realise that they know very well that it's dangerous in any circumstance to challenge the authority of the House of Commons. But to be seen to be challenging the will of the British people That's a different order, and I think they'll back off. Yeah, I completely agree. I think a lot of pro-Europeans have invested a lot of hope in MPs, never mind just the peers. If not voting against Article 50, which is almost impossible to contemplate, 
then seriously influencing the government's position by tabling amendments and exerting influence during the parliamentary debate. I don't think they'll really do that precisely because, as George said, the press and uh, the government itself has done a good job of polarising the choice between, ultimately, do you respect the democratic choice people made in June or do you not? So if there is going to be a big moment of confrontation between government and parliament, I don't think it'll be now. Could come later. I think it'll be when the deal emerges in two years' time, if it emerges, and say it's mid-term, the government is unpopular for all kinds of fairly typical reasons, we may have an economy that's not thrumming along as healthily as it is now, then I think MPs might find the courage of their convictions and uh, assert themselves against the government, but not anytime soon. To return to domestic matters ever so slightly, this is the autumn statement next week, George. It's that time of year, the leaves are falling from the trees and it's time for another big fiscal event in Westminster. This is Philip Hammond's first autumn statement and essentially his first budget. He's never delivered this before since he entered the Treasury back in the summer. Lot of talk and rumours going around about what's going to be in it, about battles between Downing Street who want a big flashy budget, as you reported on the jams this week. This is an excellent new term for the people who are so in between and the treasury who mr philip hammond a spreadsheet phil wants a very dry straightforward easygoing budget who's going to win out do you think in that battle and what can we expect to see well i think the biggest story of the autumn statement is a story that chris giles our colleague had on the front page of the financial times this week which was essentially that the forecast that philip hammond will present will show that cumulatively the government will have to borrow an additional hundred billion pounds by 2020 as a result of slower growth related to brexit Now, that means there is even less money for Philip Hammond to throw around. Philip Hammond, in any event, even in the best of times, is a fiscal hawk, not ideologically attuned to hang it handy at large amounts of money. So I imagine that the amount of money available for things like infrastructure and housing will be in the low billions rather than the tens of billions. I think Theresa May will insist and has insisted that there are a series of headline-grabbing measures, if you like, to help the jams you just referred to, the just-about-managing people. But it is an important moment because it's the first time the government set out its economic policy since Theresa May assumed office. But if Philip Hammond had his way, it would be the last such autumn statement. He would much rather that in future autumn statements are a simple statement on the forecasts And then all the big decisions are held back to the budget. Not surprisingly, Janan, this has been briefed as the end of austerity, which I'm sure I've heard several times, including under George Osborne's reign. George Osborne obviously cancelled the 2020 target to hit a budget surplus. So that constraint has gone. What do you think is going to be the focus with this? And is this any truth to this end of austerity line that's appeared in some of the papers? No, and this is what causes the government a bit of a problem in that when Theresa May became Prime Minister in the summer, not through any deliberate briefing, but they allowed the impression to be created that post-referendum, with George Osborne gone, a new Prime Minister, the prospect of our membership contribution coming back, the net £9 billion coming back in a few years' time, all of that would add up to a, a much more relaxed fiscal policy than we've seen in recent years. And it really was a theme of the summer. And at the time, I thought, you're letting this get out of hand because the money isn't there. A few months later, it turns out the money isn't there. Even before Chris Giles's brilliant report this week, which exposed the potential deterioration in the fiscal numbers, things were bad enough already. So there's not going to be a big loosening. I agree with George, it's probably going to be single-digit billions, this infrastructure investment increase. And I think in the summer it was talked up as something far beyond that. So what Philip Hammond has to do next week is really take a bit of the hype out of the government's rhetoric on what it can do in fiscal policy and get the country used to the fact that 
This country has not balanced a budget since 2002, I think. The deficit is a serious thing. The handling it is likely to get even worse because of projections about growth. And really, there's a legitimate debate to be had about do you aim for a surplus? Do you have a rolling target? Do you aim for a primary balance uh, or a balance after interest debt repayments are taken into account? But there's no intelligent debate to be had about the fact that for the foreseeable future, fiscal policy will be tightening. Yes, and I, I would just say that the, the government's got to be very careful about spinning this as the end of austerity because there is no money and people are going to listen to that rhetoric and think, OK, one thing's going to improve in our hospitals. When are we going to stop seeing riots in our prisons? And if they think this is the end of austerity, they've got another thing coming because the deficit will persist through into the 2020s. You know, that's 15 years or more since the financial crash hit. There's going to be tough times ahead still and... Um, I think the public needs to be prepared for that. And I think that would be one of Philip Hammond's big tasks next week. And for next week, we've got a Autumn Statement special podcast with economist Rupert Harrison and Stephanie Flanders, who will be coming in to give their expert views on the Autumn Statement. And that will be out on Thursday afternoon. So you can grab a quick response to it then. Now, do you remember when Donald Trump proclaimed the Republicans are the dumbest group of voters in America? They believe anything Fox News tells them. I could lie and they'd still eat it up. Well, actually, he didn't say that, but you might have seen that on your Facebook feed or Twitter profile during the election campaign. This is an example of fake news, a new phenomenon that has occurred both during the US election and the EU referendum in Britain, when stories that are patently untrue from sometimes unreputable outlets gain traction on social media. This can be thanks to automatic algorithms or people who are happy just to bareface lie. But crucially, is this changing how we vote and how we think about democracy? David Bond, there's been a lot in the news this week about fake news and about Facebook and Twitter's efforts to try and curtail this or not, as the case may be. How big of a problem do you reckon this is? Well, I think the first point to make, Seb, is that, of course, fake news is nothing new. You know, fake news has been around forever. And I think the difficulty here is, of course, that it's able to be transported so much more efficiently by the social media sites. And it's harder to weed out. So in the old days, when traditional media was able to filter this stuff and be able to work out what was a fake story and what wasn't, of course, you had those safety checks. That isn't happening now because people are able to post stuff up online and get around the system. So, of course, I do think it's a much, much bigger problem. And the question is, is how do Facebook and other social media sites really tackle it when they've always made it clear that they're reluctant to be seen as a media editor uh, in the traditional sense. Well, Rennie, as our head of audience engagement, you're essentially responsible for the FT's profile and what have you on these networks. They've clamped down on some of these alt-right groups, which are hard-right organisations that flirt with white supremacy. And they've killed three accounts of some key figures there, which has been welcomed by some and criticised by others. Do you think, based on what you see from all the FT's profiles, that Twitter and Facebook need to do more or should they not be doing it at all? I would first of all say I think it's not all of them have been clamping down. I think it was Twitter in particular that yeah. did some of the banning of a few accounts. So it's three accounts out of millions. Arguably, it's pretty tangential, but it is a gesture. And I think it's an important one. It's a complicated question what the social responsibility of social media is. And I don't have the answer. But worst of all, nor do they. And nor do they seem particularly interested actually in engaging in a conversation around it. So I think before even deciding what they should be doing, should they be banning or not banning, there is a real question of their needing to acknowledge publicly, which very few of them have, that actually this is having a real effect, that whether it's the humans 
at these platforms or most likely the algorithms that arguably there is systematically more fake news being served to people and that has a real effect and that there is some kind of responsibility for this. Because Mark Zuckerberg said this week that this is not our problem. Basically just held his hands up and said nothing to do with us. It's the news published and people reading them. But that doesn't really seem good enough because particularly for the people who backed Hillary Clinton in the US election, they feel that a lot of the stories about their candidate were false. But as I said, there were just as many false stories about Donald Trump out there as well. Arguably, actually, there were probably percentage-wise more false stories about Hillary Clinton. Again, this is very anecdotal data. Mm. Nobody's done the full study because, again, it's, it's very hard to it's do. It's impossible, much, yeah. right? There's, very, again, very little access is given by social media platforms to what they know is user behavior. But more or less, more many media reporting is that of the political websites that get exposure across social media, this is on Facebook exclusively, about 30% of the news on the right-wing media were false. About 23% on the left-wing media were false. So arguably, the proportion of false stories about the left, i.e. in right-wing media, there was a higher proportion. And for better or for worse, social media optimizes for engagement. People engage with tangentious stories. Tangentious stories will be seen more. So, Robert, in the FT's editorial line this week, we discussed whether Facebook is the news agent of the 21st century. And it is and it isn't in some respects. So people go to Facebook to get their news in the same way you would go to your local news agent to buy a copy of, say, the Financial Times. But they are also responsible for curating what is there because the market is so much more diversified now and the sites are so much more partisan. Whether they like it or not, they are playing a role in deciding that. But it's algorithms that are doing this is not human. They used to be humans and then they were decided to be too biased and now it's algorithms and they're decided to be too susceptible to fake news. So is there any easy answer to this in, in your opinion? No. That's There's an easy answer to that and the easy answer is no. I think there are a few things that need to be said about this to keep this in perspective. First of all, I actually am sceptical that so-called fake news swung the election. I don't think there's any real evidence to suggest that that is the case. Secondly, I'm deeply troubled by the idea that Facebook might take on a role deciding what news is true and not. I think that's almost more worrying than the idea that it's a platform in which false reports can be propagated. This morning, as part of the FT, I wrote a satirical column imagining Nigel Farage's conversations with Theresa May in his role as envoy to Donald Trump. Now, that is fake news. It is not true because I imagined it. Should Facebook be able to ban that? A few weeks ago, we were getting very worried about the idea that Facebook banned the most iconic photograph from the Vietnam War. I think the idea that a platform as powerful as Facebook has a massive censorship role is probably more alarming than the notion that it is a vehicle by which nonsense can be propagated. And I'm afraid this is the world we live in now. We live in a world of the internet where people can put out absolute rubbish. They can peddle lies. They can peddle half-truths. But let's also be one of the biggest fake news stories of the entire American election was that Hillary Clinton was responsible for a scandal to quote Donald Trump that was as bad as Watergate, the email scandal. You know, that was not true. That was fake news. There are people, particularly on the left, in Britain who would say that most of the news that is put out by the right-wing press is fake news. So although this was demonstrably more fake and patently untrue, I think we're in a very, very dangerous place if we start saying to Facebook, you decide what's true and false. So Facebook, um, David Bond, they used to have human editors who would curate their news topics and promote stories from outlets they deemed were respectable, places like I say the FT, Wall Street Journal, you name it. But then people on the right of American politics dug into the backgrounds of all these editors and discovered that, shock horror, they work in Silicon Valley and the Facebook and they tend to be more left-leaning. 
meaning. So they decide to scrap them and bring in algorithm instead. We have no idea how that algorithm works, what it does, and it has been decided by people online that it is unfair. What is Facebook going to do about this? And it can't really satisfy anyone or everyone. Well, the answer is, is, is we just don't know. And it seems to me that they're making it up as they go along. So they get an outcry about, as Robert flagged there, the photograph from the Vietnam War. And so they make a new policy then. We get another blog post from Mark Zuckerberg. And then suddenly we go down a different road with full stories. So I genuinely don't think they know exactly how this is going to end. I was speaking to someone today who said that in the past they had a former journalist in America whose job it was to go around and talk to people in Facebook about the sorts of things which are sensitive, about the need for an editorial board and to explore some of these things. But they don't seem to have responded to it. And to pick up on Robert's point about censorship, I'm not sure that censorship is the same thing as editorial responsibility. And actually, I wonder if Facebook shouldn't be considering having a proper editorial board in place so that they can make proper decisions. On the other hand, if you look in the past, the National Enquirer, the Daily Sport, they've run you know all sorts of nonsense on their front pages for years. The reader is able to take a view and think, actually, that's rubbish. I'm not going to read that. Why is it, if it appears in a Facebook feed, we think that everyone who's reading it thinks it's true? The idea of a board of editorial responsibility is a seductive one. It sounds like the kind of thing that could work, but we're talking about millions of posts every day. The idea that they can all be caught is, I think, very difficult. The only way you could actually make this work, it strikes me algorithmically, is to proscribe organisations and say, they're not to be trusted, we're striking them off the list. And then you end up with respectable in inverted commas, news organisations whose posts can be put out. But then someone puts something on a blog, is that allowed to be posted on Facebook? I don't think it's workable. I think the only thing that's workable is for people to wise up and understand that there is a difference between one organisation and another. Rene, I think Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, commented on Thursday about this, that editors and journalists do this all the time, every day, where deciding, is this true, is this false? You put in a phone call, you speak to someone. So this is what we do, and essentially is what we're paid for to make decisions on this kind of thing. Facebook at some point is going to have to take some responsibility for this, Do you think it will ever be able to satisfy? Will it be able to get an editorial board or give a kite mark to organisations that it seems respected? Because that will, again, lead to the whole narrative of the mainstream media versus the new media, which is exactly what we have now. And a lot of people said led to the election of Donald Trump. I do think Facebook and Google and Twitter will have to react. I do think this there's enough cumulative sense of there being something wrong that there will have to be some kind of reaction. Also, to give a little bit of credit, there has been a reaction. Google and Facebook have both decided that they would not allow advertising on publishers, pages on their platforms that have officially been denounced as having false news. So that's actually a good thing. It's an easy thing for them to do. But depending on the volume of fake news being published, they could even lose a lot of money. It's probably a micro fraction of the money they're making, so it's not really hurting them. And so it may be getting even sort of more symbolic dividends than they really deserve. That being said, that's probably actually, I would say, the lever of intervention. Because the thing is, as I was saying before, engagement works. And engagement is also what Facebook and even Google are able to monetize. They're not interested in penalizing engagement. So there's going to have to be at some point probably a sacrifice of revenue in the interest of a better quality content, in the interest of a better democracy, that is going to have to happen. And I think that's the conversation that now, more or less, they're being compelled to come to the table to talk about this. 
and actually, you know, are we blaming the wrong person here or the wrong people? And it's the fake websites, the Breitbarts that you mentioned at the start who are putting this stuff out. They're getting huge followings, you know, huge, huge audiences are now turning to them. That is slightly more worrying to me than in some ways what Facebook are doing with that sort of material afterwards. Truth is that the internet for all its many wonders is a vehicle for reductiveness in democracy it is a vehicle for reducing serious arguments it is a vehicle for shoutiness it is a vehicle for um, the lowest common denominator the only solutions you have here are for people to understand what is happening and attempting to use some kind of filter themselves to weed out the things that are demonstrably not true and the other thing that has to happen is that both sides have to get better in democracies both sides have to get better at rapid rebuttal in the same way in a much smaller level that the Labour Party got very good at rapid rebuttal in the late 1990s political parties are going to have to get better at this Well there's no clear answers there and when we hopefully manage to get some we'll come back to you That's it for this week's episode Thank you very much to all our guests for joining We'll be back next week for our Autumn Statement special of FT Politics Thank you for listening If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's currencies correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.